Hello and welcome back to season two of Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith the podcast for food book lovers, where food is the story. We start by skipping off to the Ukraine to the summer kitchens of food writer Olya Hercules. The Guardian writer and author of the award-winning Mamushka, Caucasus and an Observer Rising Star, Olya is a rare writer who uses food to dig deeper in every book she writes into a country she left when she was a child. Nigella, no less, calls her a storyteller writer and a wholly original voice in the kitchen. And here she shows us why. In her latest book, Summer Kitchens, her beautifully emotive writing gives us a picture of a Ukraine whose story has been changed by war, but through the windows of its summer kitchens gives us another view. Of course, I over-romanticise them a bit because, well, that's the place of my childhood and how can I not, you know? I caught up with Olya in her home during lockdown through the magic of remote recording and as her new baby Wilf slept upstairs, I asked her why so many women seem to write books while they're pregnant. (laughs) Yeah, there must be something about it that makes you... (laughs) kind of a, a little bit more, um, I don't know, focused in a way, but you're, you're also really distracted. I don't know, it's a weird one. <laughs> I wonder if it's a natural gestation period. You know, if you think about the nine months that you're pregnant, I mean, it's not like you haven't got anything else to do. You've got another child, and you've got a whole life to live. But actually, there's this kind of feeling, isn't there, that you're you're brewing this 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 idea you're and I'm not talking about the baby I'm talking about you know you're, you've got some time to start really kind of preparing it's it's a bit like a birth isn't it it is yeah and um yeah so uh, my youngest son Wilf was uh, born in January and I'm actually actually quite quite happy that there was a bit like five almost six months between the two births but yes it is um it's an interesting feeling it's a very good feeling So Summer Kitchens, it's back to Ukraine. It's the next episode in your story of finding your way back to yourself. That's what I love so much about the work that you do. This, you know, we've talked so many times now about, you know, the fact that you left the country of your childhood. You left Ukraine when you were 12 and went to Cyprus before coming to university in the UK. But it was kind of coming back to finding your way back to yourself when you were at university. Um, that really got you interested in the food, in the cooking from your homeland, isn't it? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, well, I didn't, as as, you, as I've told you before, maybe I, you know, I haven't really cooked um, when I was very young, and I started in my twenties. And that decade is all about kind of discovering yourself, isn't it? So, and then once I um, uh, trained to be a chef in my late twenties. Even then, for the first two years, I kind of just didn't really think about cooking Eastern European food. And then at some point, it just dawned on me. I just thought, oh, I'm sitting on this treasure trove of uh, recipes and why am I not writing about this, you know? It, It feels like you're solidifying it each time. You know, the first Mamushka was more sort of nostalgia kind of finding your way back through the whispers of of stories to who you were then summer kitchens is a building this is where stuff ferments where stuff pickles it's time it's you know all these stories are kind of coming together now and sitting in a building that you are revisiting tell us a little bit about summer kitchens so I mean, to to me as a kid growing up with one, it was such a normal, unremarkable thing. 
I didn't really realize until I actually started researching them more about five, almost six years ago. I just very kind of casually mentioned it to someone here in the UK and they said, wait, wait, hold on. What, what do you mean by summer kitchen? Uh, do you mean like a dacha, you know, somewhere, a country house where you go? And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. It's nothing like that. It's it's actually a small structure within your home. I mean, it's mostly they... Um, They're in rural places in Ukraine, although small towns as well, like where I grew up, 50,000 people or something. So it's a separate structure uh, within kind of your, uh, you know, your courtyard where you live. Uh, Ours was just a few steps away from our front door of the main house. And it's almost like a miniature version of your main house. So ours was made out of brick. There was a roof. There were windows. There was quite a high porch and a door. But it was just one room inside, just this kitchen. And um, so when I realized that, oh, actually, yes, this is such an interesting thing, uh, I started looking at it through my kind of, you know, British eyes in a way, because I've been living here for so long, I almost feel sometimes that I have two identities. And I just thought, oh, wow, that's fascinating. But I want to learn more about them because we never really thought, oh, summer kitchen, summer kitchen, you know, this is where you go and cook in the summer because it's hot inside of the big house. You didn't have air cons. The summers were really hot. And um, loads of women that I interviewed also said, well, another reason is because, you know, in the summer, if you cook in the summer kitchen and your children just hang around there, it's much easier to clean. You know, you don't have to think about cleaning your whole big house and with all of the semi-industrial pickling that you're doing inside and whatever. So they're very practical places, you know. Of course, I over-romanticize them a bit because, well, that's the place of my childhood and how can I not, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, it's like a cellar, isn't it? It's like a cellar or a, a pantry. Not many people have pantries these days and most people don't have cellars either. But it's a cool place, a place where you can, it's dedicated to food. Yeah, dedicate, it's, it's almost like a cooking, uh, like a workshop. A little cooking, yeah. cookery studio, but that sounds really modern and fancy. I mean, they're not. They're just very simple yeah. things. Um, and yeah, so, and then uh, six years ago, I started um, researching them and I started in my hometown. Well, actually in, in the village uh, next door where my grandmother's uh, summer kitchen was. My aunt lives there now. And she took me to her neighbors, a couple, um, and I interviewed them. And they told me this really fascinating story, which actually later on when I traveled all over Ukraine, you know, it matched. Um, they said that uh, after the Second World War, kind of like maybe maybe, maybe even in the 50s, uh, when people started living, uh, you know, a little bit better and things kind of set, started settling uh, in rural places in Ukraine, but actually in other Eastern European countries as well, a couple would get married. And um, by the time they get their land, sometimes, to be honest with you, they would already have children as well. But the way they'd, they'd start building their house is that they'll construct the structure first. So this little mini house with just one room that put a makeshift bed there and a kerosene, you know, a kerosene stove. Or if there was um, a specialist in the village, they would build, he would build a big masonry oven for them, uh, which heated up the place. Called for- the, is it the pitch or the pick? Yeah, peach. Yeah, peach. peach. Yeah. Uh, so they would live in this kind of dwelling for the uh, six super warm months and build the bigger house 
and uh, build their life around them. So they would put the vegetables in, they would put their orchard in, you know, everything would be kind of uh, mushrooming up around this little summer kitchen. And then once everything was built, uh, this would become the place where you cook in the summer. And also where yeah. you do all your pickling, fermenting, etc. It's a it's a wonderful place. It's a, it's you know you've used this brilliantly as a sort of a base to tell this another story of your Ukraine. And I love the peach. The peach is um, it's, it's it has mythical qualities, doesn't it? You you talk about how it's got kind of a spiritual connection and healing connections. Tell us more about the peach. Um, so peach, uh, which also exists, a uh, version of in Russia and uh, Poland, etc. You know, in a, I'm, I'm sure Lithuania, Latvia, etc. So it's like a masonry uh, oven that is kind of built in into your wall, and also in such a way. I'm not, I'm not obviously an expert in how it's constructed, but it heats your whole house, and it's also used um, for cooking. For cooking, for drying, I mean, even for a birth giving back in the day, because, yeah. you know, it, it would be kind of like the safest and what I think people perceived, you know, the, the warmest place. Uh, and it also had, just to explain how the hell can you give birth on the beach? <laughs> it, it also <laughs> has, it, it had benches where you could sleep. So on the very top shelf, uh, you know, you put, you put a kind of mattress blankets and, and your uh, straw kind of pillows and whatever, and you sleep there and it's really warm, obviously. Um, so, you know, it would be, yeah. And it, it almost had this mythical and sacred, uh, meaning to people. So you weren't allowed to swear in front of it. So, you know, cursing, it's, it, it was almost like a mother figure in a way. But yeah. um, and the brides would scratch at it to keep some of it under their their fingernails when they left the house. It's insane. Yeah, that's what I read. That uh, in the past, uh, when a uh, young woman was to leave her house and get, you know, she she got married and left the house, that uh, tradition was to kind of like scratch on the white uh, of the on the wall of the peach, so a little bit of the. Claire, whatever paint gets under your nails, and that symbolized you kind of keeping your family with you. So you're leaving, yeah. but you keep a little bit of that with you as well. I mean, it's insane, but <laughs> it's it's extraordinary, you know. And it's so different from the way that we perceive food, and it's what your books are really all about. And it leads us to your first food moment, which is the rock and roll pancakes, which. You talk about in terms terms of food and birth. Tell me why you chose that one as your first food moment. Um, from all of the recipes in the book, it, it's the most emotionally charged. Uh, so my mum made these, essentially they're blintzes. So these pancakes, uh, that's just a bit of egg flour and milk. And then she adds a bit of hot water to make it kind of like spongy and lacy and delicious. And she made them our whole life. Um, and then uh, eight years ago, a day before my older son's due date, I wake up, uh, it was a bit of a lion, I wake up at nine o'clock in the morning and, and, and all I can think about is these pancakes. I'm just obsessively thinking about them. I'm just like, oh gosh, now I have to get up and bloody make them, you know. So I kind of like, oh, lift myself off the bed, you know, super heavy 
pregnant and then I realized that you know well my, my water is broken and uh, and I'm convinced uh, later on I started reading up more about birth and what happens with your body and I thought oh it must have produced so much oxytocin that it kind of uh, made me so happy thinking about them that um, I gave birth to my son pretty much five hours later it was quite a fast one uh, and he is now obsessed with them and ha has always been since his grandma kind of made, made them for him. I mean, obs absolutely obsessed. So I, I told him this story and it's a nice moment between us, I think. And the picture in the book is yeah. my, it, it is my mom making the pancakes for Sasha and Joe photographed them. I think it's very sweet. And um, Joe is your husband. And, and do you think that Wolf will be eating those pancakes before too long? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, they're, they're really good. And it, it's just such a nice thing every time that my mom comes over to the UK. You know, it's this for ages. I was like, no, no sugar and stop eating refined flour. You know, I was super strict about it. She was like, please just let us have this pancake moment between us. You know, <laughs> this is something that we, between me and him, just let me make these pancakes every day for him whilst I'm here. I'm like, OK, fine. So, yeah, I hope so. Your parents are still um, living in the Ukraine. Since you've brought all these recipes, all this family stuff back through these now these three books, do they feel differently about the food from the Ukraine? Yeah, eh, in a way. I mean, I, I think they've always appreciated how tasty everything was. They never had the weird complex that I had about Eastern European food in general. I think, you know, when I moved to the UK or even in Cyprus, you know, people would just say, oh, what's Ukrainian food like? Oh, it's just potatoes and cabbages and you know, overcooked cabbage and stuff. And it's like, oh, I, I don't know, I guess. I don't know. It just made, I'm not the only one. I think people just went, oh, maybe it's not tasty. Maybe it's not as vibrant as Italian or it's not interesting as something else. But actually it is. And um, me coming back and asking them questions about, you know, fermentatia or, you know, which we don't use that word, obviously. We just use kvashina, which means to make things sour. It kind of like reignited their fascination and, and made them look uh, at the food a little bit differently, I guess. Yeah, they, they kind of uh, treat it all quite humorously. You know, all of my kind of serious questions and stuff, they giggle and then they tell me. But it's a yeah, it's a nice feeling. Yeah, my books have never been published in Ukraine. So uh, Caucasus has been published in Russia actually recently, interestingly enough, but um, they never made it to Ukraine. So I, I still do have Ukrainian people that know of me, but I think it's more maybe a, a bit expats or something. It's the expat thing. And we'll talk a little bit at the end about the amazing letters that you had from, from the expats. But let's go to your second food moment, the sour cabbage rolls. And this is about your mum and your grandmother. This is really nostalgia for you. Yes. Uh, yeah, it is. So my, my maternal grandmother, Lucia, uh, she, I mean, all of this kind of stuff that I write about in Mamushka, and I think the general powerful feeling of is connected with cooking and also stories, it all comes from her mainly. So she was kind of like almost a matriarch kind of figure. You know, she had uh, my granddad, who I think was uh, extremely traumatized after the war. So he was kind of like a subdued, super kind, gentle figure. And then, you know, she's gone through her share of uh, stuff as well. But I don't know, women maybe had to really mobilize themselves inside for their children. I don't know, as a mother, I kind of think, how do you deal with trauma like that? Because I'm sure both men and women went through stuff. 
But she, so she had six children, my mom being the youngest. So she had my mom when she was 36, which was quite late, but you know, back in the 50s. Um, and she was amazing. So she cooked, uh, she looked after animals. And then she also, uh, my mom said, you know, would start when everything was done in the house and everybody's gone to bed, she'd also lie down and uh, read, uh, you know, French historical novels or something in, into the small hours. So she was a really interesting figure. And my mom has been talking about this one dish that grandma made, which my mom never really made. And I never, and my grandma stopped making it by the time we came along. I don't know why, uh, but it involved, you know, holubtsi, your stuffed cabbage uh, rolls, which are kind of ubiquitous all over Eastern Europe. But the way that she made these ones was using um, fermented uh, cabbage leaves. So you'd either do that yourself, you just stick a few underneath your sauerkraut. And then by the time you finish with your big barrel of sauerkraut, you've got these perfect sour uh, leaves, you know, the tough ones outside, um, but they kind of cook, almost cook with this fermentation method and soften. Yeah. Or you, uh, if you went to the market again, you'd ask a, a lady that sells sauerkraut that you know, and she'd slip you a couple of these leaves or whatever. Yeah. And it involved, her original recipe involved uh, hand-cut uh, pork and some uh, rice, I think, and uh, onion, you know, very simple, and then all cooked in a um, sour cream kind of white sauce. Yeah. So if you imagine, you know, all of those flavors, fatty pork, that sour cabbage, and then, you know, slightly sweet and sour cream... I in my head, you know, I'd imagine them to be delicious. So I tried to make it uh, to how my mom described the recipe. And I just couldn't quite get there, to be honest with you. And I thought, oh, but I'm so determined to make this work. Um, and then I kind of came up with this uh, recipe that we have in the book. So it still involves the sour uh, leaves and the pork, but I used pork that it was left over. Because when I was kind of developing the recipe, I was like, ah, I've just made this uh pork belly that was slow cooked in the oven etc and i have some leftover why don't i try to do this and add some barley etc and then they came out uh really delicious i've also kind yeah. of like um uh, baked them in the oven so they got a little bit of color on them uh yeah they're super tasty so yeah it's maybe it's not authentically my grandmother's but it's um definitely influenced by those stories and makes me wonder why sometimes recipes fall out of circulation. And it's fascinating. I mean, it, what I love about that story is that it starts in your head. You know, it's a dream. It's a dream of a time gone by. It's a dream of a person. You know, I love the way that you fill the gaps almost. You know, this this grandmother of yours, you, you, you take her back to a person who you couldn't have known. You fill her up. And that's what you do with your food, isn't it? It's so much more than food. And I wonder it's because it is about bringing yourself back to the Ukraine, but also opening the Ukraine up to other people just to discover I'm going on a road trip to my husband's home. I mean, it's not his homeland, it's about three generations back, but his grandparents came from the Ukraine on both sides. So we're going to go on a, a road trip. And I'm looking at your books and I'm thinking, Suddenly, I feel I know it, you know, from the three different books. 
it's it's not the place that I had in my head. It's not somewhere that's cold, you know, very grey. It's much, much bigger than I thought. And it's full of stories, and which makes me so excited to go there. And I feel like I can explore it through its food. I have more of a, a chance of accessing this place that my husband has no real connection with through the food. Is that kind of what you were doing? In a way, you know, it's more... After I brought Mamushka, I realized that my idea of Ukraine was kind of in, in a bit of a bubble. And, you know, everything in Mamushka, you know, it's it's what we kind of grew up with and what what my grandmother cooking, what my mom was cooking. And as you say, Ukraine is absolutely huge. And, um, and also after Mamushka was published, you know, loads of people... Uh, again, third or fifth generation Canadians, for example, would get in touch with me and say, oh, this brought so much. But do you have this recipe or do you have this recipe? And, you know, a lot of them are actually from Western Ukraine. And I just thought, you know, I've only been to Western Ukraine in winter when I was 10, you know, really long time ago. And I would really love to actually learn more about my country. Uh, it is huge. And And then after doing a bit of research, I mean, it's even more apparent how just how diverse it is, all of those borders and how history kept shifting and the borders just kept on stretching. I mean, to be honest with you, Ukraine didn't really exist in its current form before the 1990, 1991. So I just wanted to find out more about Ukraine as it is now and uh, find those recipes. And as you said earlier, yes, summer kitchens were this perfect kind of prism perfect window for me to look through it because that's something that we had in common but then there were all, all also all of these differences yeah and that's interesting because I saw it as a much more solidifying way of your of rooting your nostalgia but you you talk about still looking through the window there's still this distance isn't there yes uh both physical and cultural for sure but it leads us neatly onto the, the the found recipes. You know, you use a lot of your family recipes and you re- research and you talk. And, but actually, you also talk to a lot of other people, don't you? And your third food, food moment is a friend's recipe. Yes. So um, traveling all over Ukraine and kind of finding people, again, it's, you know, word of mouth. I kind of just put it out, maybe even on social media, like with this uh, woman, uh, and just say, Ukrainians, you know, if you know someone, please uh, put me in touch. I'm researching, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sometimes it's family that helped out. And sometimes it was people that I've kind of been connected on Instagram for years and years and years, even before I kind of written my books. And um, one of them was Victoria, who said, oh, my grandma lives in Poltava. I know that this is an area that you're really interested in. And I went and I saw her grandmother. And we sat in the summer kitchen and, you know, it's just one of the, and, and the story kind of like repeats again in other places as well. So I go and I ask this woman, so please, can you tell me any, any interesting recipes that perhaps, especially if your grandma, or your mom made, but you don't make anymore, you know, kind of inspired by my grandmother's cabbage rolls, just thinking, let's yeah. resurrect something there. And, you know, they'd sit and they'd say, oh, no, I, I don't know. You know, there's what's interesting, you know, that's not interesting. This is not interesting. And then the grandson would go, hold on a minute. What about those apples 
you know, fermented in pumpkin mash that you used to make, but you don't make anymore. You know, that was delicious. She was like, oh, is this interesting? You know, so it's that kind of thing. And, and, and she'd tell me, and I went back uh, to the UK and I found uh, apples that were quite similar to the variety that she used. Um, and I did the whole process. And to be honest with you, I was so nervous about this recipe because I really wanted it to work, but I just thought, oh, this might not work or might not be, or maybe there's a reason why people stop making it or whatever. So I just put it in a jar and just kind of put it away and waited and just kind of almost forgetting about it. Like, oh God, I don't want to look. And then I looked at it in about three months uh, and I thought, oh my God, I left it in a place that was too warm. I didn't even put it in a cold place. It's all gone. And I looked at it and there were just the tiniest little bubble going up. It's like, oh, it's alive, but it's not alive in the same way. I wonder if that's why they used pumpkin mash instead of uh, brine, which you also ferment your apples in the brine normally. Um, There's so much sugar that there's enough to feed these bacteria over quite a long period of time, actually. And then I picked up one of these apples, I took it out, I cut it and I was amazed uh the inside was still fresh almost with only a very slightly still crunchy and kind of uh, that's after three months but the outside the rim I mean you can see it in the book was pickled you know it it definitely started going a little bit fizzy and sour it was just the most delicious thing and then uh the pumpkin uh, mash itself was just so tasty it kind of acquired a little bit of the apple taste and the uh, and the other way around you know all of these flavors just exchanged and it almost tasted of like green berries of some sort i mean so yeah it was just absolutely fascinating and and uh, as i say it it repeated in other places again you know you'd go and you talk to someone and they're like they'd say Oh, nothing, nothing. And then someone younger would prompt them and say, oh, how about this? Or the way that you used to cook these, uh, uh, you know, plums in peach, uh, but you don't do anymore. And then that would open up a conversation. And I I collected so much uh, interesting information that way. It was feel quite lucky. Yeah. I mean, I was, while you were talking there, I was just thinking about, gosh, I really should revisit my parents, my grandparents' recipes. And, you know, there's so few people around now who I can try and kind of get those recipes from. I need to do it now. But actually, they really weren't about place. Yours are about place and about heat. You know, when you're talking about fermentation, going back to the summer kitchen, the pickling and the fermentation had to happen in the cooler places. So they make your recipes very specific. It Obviously, it was all local. Is that timelessness that you kind of convey in the book about the fact that you're still using local produce? Uh, Yes. Um, I mean, everything is changing in cities. And even in my small town, there are changes. I mean, they are inevitable. So when I did my research and I I, um, I went to see people's houses in my hometown, some of the summer kitchens are turning into uh, dog kernels or even storage spaces or just being destroyed because people can now put a, a an aircon in and maybe a younger couple doesn't want to ferment 40 kilos of excess aubergines even if they're available you know there's different kind of goals but um but they still but people still grow vegetables uh and in rural areas you know they still the summer kitchens are still there and actually in one place in Polisia uh northern uh northern ukraine uh amongst all of these beautiful forests uh we met a family that turned the summer kitchen into a granny flat 
So the granny, who is incredible, lives there now. She's got a bath in there. You know, it's it's all kind of turned into this. By the peach. Uh, yeah, by the exactly bath bathtub by the peach. Um, but her children, her her grandchildren, are now building a bigger house uh, a couple of steps away, basically, and yeah. they are building a peach. Uh, yeah. You know, so inside, so. I don't know. I really, I'm really hoping that some of these uh, traditions will keep going, and especially, I hope that people will keep growing their own food and appreciate that. You know how amazing that is to yeah. be able yeah. to have all that. Yeah, I the way that you talk about borscht, which is your fourth food moment, seems to sum up all of that. It has its authenticity, its root, and everybody has their own borscht, but. It also, it changes in each of the regions and it grows and seems to develop. Yes, uh, yes, it does. Absolutely. But um, as I was growing up, you know, up until a couple of years ago when I started researching summer kitchens, actually, you know, it it was always implanted in my head. My grandmother saying, borscht must be of this spe- very specific deep pink color. It should never be super red. Uh, you know, all of the redness would come actually from uh, local tomatoes. And if you go to a market, you'd get these beetroots that are almost like Kyoja, you know, your pink candy beetroots that you use for borscht. You don't use the red ones where I come from. Uh, and yeah. then, uh, you know, it has to be super thick, etc., etc. And then when I started researching it, I was like, oh, well, but in Western Ukraine, they also make this really uh, super red uh, borscht with these dumplings. And, and, and it's very it's very elegant and almost like a consomme and doesn't have vegetables in it. Yeah. And uh, you go to another place and it's different. And, and then it dawned on me and I started researching more and more. And of course, uh, the soil where in the south where I'm from, uh, the 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 type of beetroots that they grew and the type of tomatoes you know naturally lent that color and whatever to the borscht yeah. so you know it wasn't the correct borscht it was just the correct borscht for the area um and it's absolutely fascinating so you say about it moving forward but i also saw how we're losing things so again that family that i just told you about in north northern uh, ukraine they used to make a borscht using elvers, so baby eels, but but those are gone now from the local rivers. You know they've they've been overfished, I guess, and uh, you know that's that tradition is gone. So the grandma told me about yeah. how delicious was the elvers borscht, and that was so. I haven't. I've read so much information about borscht books, etc. Interviewed people, never heard about these this borscht with elvers, and um, yeah, just feel so lucky to have. Uh, come across that information really yeah that story yeah and and you do you write a whole essay on bush and it is fascinating you you can tell that you've just got your your mitts into this particular dish because it represents so much of what we know of of ukraine but actually you know you just dissect it and you find all these individual uh, uh, characters uh, from different places and these different stories and these different legends. That's probably the metaphor of Ukraine, really, isn't it? That it is so much more diverse than we think of it from the outside. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, 
and and I guess like any country, you know, but we were, we were used to thinking of Italy and France as regional, etc. And and for some reason, we've just always not only spoke of just Ukrainian food, but of Eastern European food as if it's just one big clump of thing. But you know, uh, Ukraine specifically is so diverse in its climate and nature and what grows around, etc. So. Yes, uh, that's a very good one, yeah. good metaphor for it. You said earlier that you put out on social media that you were looking for uh, recipes from people's experience of, of Ukraine, and they generally came from expats. You've put some of those letters in the back of the book, which were absolutely beautiful. And in the same way as you do, you they reminisce about a Ukraine that is no longer their home, but will always be their homeland. It's a lovely idea. Why did you choose to do that? Was that practical that you couldn't actually get there to all those different places? Yes. Initially, I thought, okay, so, you know, as we we decided to travel as much as time and kind of money allowed us as well. Uh, You know, Ukraine, as as we've mentioned, is huge. And we've done as much as physically was we were able to, you know, we also obviously I've got a son at home. So, Maybe if I was if I wasn't a mom, I would just go and live in Ukraine for six months and travel for six months, you know, and it'd be a, a, a much uh, more difficult job to do actually to sit through all the information. But we did what we could, and th- but then some areas like Crimea, for example, we just couldn't get to. I tried thinking of all different ways, but it was just too dangerous. We just thought, okay, we'll just leave that. We'll, and we found a Tatar family by the border with Crimea. And did that. And then there was also obviously Eastern Ukraine where there's still uh, the war going on. So we couldn't go there either. So I thought, oh, I'll put this appeal out on Instagram and I'll just say, if you had a summer kitchen, please, could you uh, send me an email and I'll send you some interview questions. It would be so interesting to see. And I got so many letters and actually not just from Ukraine. There were people from uh, Canada, there were people from Hungary, Bulgaria, etc., etc. You know, this tradition is actually rife in uh, many Eastern European countries. So once I was finishing writing the book, I was reading these letters and uh, most of them actually, if you took away my questions, they just read like these beautiful love letters, really, to summer kitchens. Um, And I did take those questions out and I sent it to my uh, editor at Bloomsbury and I said, oh, my God, please, is it what do you think about this idea? Could we publish these at the end as, um, you know, as pretty much as these letters, you know, let's not edit them too much. A a few of them, like the first one in the book was actually written by a schoolgirl from northern Ukraine in English. And it was really beautiful. And I just thought, wow, could, could we please and they loved the idea. And of, of course, we couldn't uh, fit all the 100 let- letters in. So we had to sift through and we picked uh, seven. And um, and they're just so beautiful. And they are like little capsules, uh, like mem- memory capsules. And uh, and a couple of letters were by um, uh, young women from eastern Ukraine. And they, uh, they talk about their childhoods and, you know, they can't go back there. And it's all gone and it's... Uh, yeah, it's it was quite an, an emotional part of all of that. Like me and my mom yeah. cr- cried quite a lot, quite a lot, I think. Yes, because of course, Ukraine, as we've talked about before elsewhere, you know, is a country that is suffers from rupture. Um, it is not the place where you grew up. 
Um, it's it's a it's a traumatized country, and in places where war has become part of its central character, food is a really important way of holding on to your core and and really understanding where you come from and where you're going to. Do you feel like it's a gift to Ukraine? Will they will they even read it? Will they find it? I hope so. I, I actually did my first uh, yesterday. I did my first interview for a for a Ukrainian publication in Ukrainian. The questions were beautiful. Uh, I mean, they did, they did mention I once wrote about Borscht for the New Yorker and they did put it on TV and they said a Ukrainian author wrote about Borscht, you know, etc. But uh, I really hope so. And I hope that it kind of highlights how without, you know, how important and amazing summer kitchens are but also kind of our memories are because traveling around ukraine i mean people would be would throw out their old photographs and stuff i never understand that i don't know why maybe maybe there is maybe there is something to do as you say with trauma and memories and everything but i hope that my the younger generations will hold on to it but but as you say you know those memories that you have will last forever and it is about cooking your way back to yourself. And you've done that so beautifully in your three books now. And this one is such a wonderful summer read. I've got the the pork with the kraut and fruits marinating in my fridge ready for my first social distanced party tonight. I cannot wait. Oh, wow. Wait. Exciting. If there is any left over, which I'm not sure if there will be. But if, if there is, do make those buns that are stuffed with the pork and oh it's so good they're so good i will i will thank you so much ollie it's been an absolute joy thank you for your beautiful questions thanks for listening do rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts and if you'd like to join the mailing list go to jillysmith.com and click on the link and i'll see you next week as i take you to the nairobi childhood of food writer and chef ravinda bogle